McShane Bible Study, day 78 and 79, I think, and I'm a bit pressed for time today. Uh, Weston didn't want to do it this morning. <laughs> he actually hid from me. I don't know where he was. Uh, so I, I'm just going to try to get through this quickly, but hopefully there'll be some uh, some good stuff with it. So we'll start in um, Exodus 29 and 30, I believe. Nope, sorry, Exodus 30 and 31. Well, I say I'm going to go fast, and then I read slow. I, I'm still in the first 10 verses of uh, Exodus 30. So the altar of incense clearly was outside of the Holy of Holies most days of the year, but then Aaron took it inside of the Holy Holies one day a year to um, to make the atonement, because it doesn't say that, but it doesn't make sense any other way. It's an interesting picture of, you know, the people of God serving God on a, on a regular basis. And then there comes a time when, when they, or perhaps we, should be brought into the throne room of God, uh, raised up, you might say, in the appointed time. There's atonement money placed on each life of every Israelite. Every person's valued the same in order to make uh, annual atonement. And also there's a basin for washing the priest hands and feet. And for some reason it just struck me that Jesus was nailed into his hands and feet. Um, you know, also when you see the um, the anointing of the priest, it's on the right ear lobe, thumb and big toe. Um, there's just some similarities there. When you read through how seriously the Lord takes the uh, the composition of the incense and the oils that he's creating, you can understand why he gets so uh, upset. I don't know what word to use. <laughs> he kills two of Aaron's sons because they directly disobey this. God takes the things of that he is doing very seriously. And when we decide that he's not serious and we can kind of carry his banner and go our own way, he has to cut this off in times when he is doing an important thing in the world. I think that's important for us to realize in this day. Then we see God tells Moses he's appointed Bezalel to uh, be in charge of the building of these things. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God. So he's the pers first person mentioned to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's pretty powerful. And what is he? He's a craftsman helping build out the things of God. So it's a little bit different picture than what we think about, you know, whether that be spiritual warfare or healing or uh, that's just the two that come to mind right off the top of my head. But here's someone working to build the tabernacle or, you know, the early version of the temple of God. He's the one filled with the spirit first. And that's the beginning of chapter 31, by the way. And then it goes into talking about the importance of the Sabbath, which is interesting, and I'm, I'm not going to do any long exposition on this. But, you know, Paul makes clear, look, if you want to set aside one day as particularly holy during the week, do it. If you want to say every day is holy, do that. Either way, do it under the Lord. So, that's the New Testament. But it's interesting, and, and I, I wouldn't say that I do any sort of Sabbath particularly, I'd say I'm more in the latter of those two options Paul gave. But it's interesting, the reason Paul, uh, God gives Moses for setting the Sabbath aside as holy is it, um, 
It, verse 17, it will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. So that hasn't changed. The reason that God says that he's doing it hasn't changed. So th- that's interesting. At the, at the very least, we need to be aware of the importance of this ebb and flow of you know, seasons in big picture, but even in a weekly season of uh, resting in the Lord. I, I love the verse, and it's been on just on my heart and mind a lot here in the last week. Be still and know that I am God. And that, you know, that aligns well with the Sabbath. Just be still and worship the Lord, whether that's daily or particularly once a day. Um, you realize, and of course, if we look at the history of of uh, humanity in uh, millennia, and we look at the seventh day rest, maybe aligning to we're coming up on that, uh, maybe aligning on the uh, thousand year reign, kind of aligns in that way. So that's interesting as well. And chapter thirty one ends. It's a short chapter actually, with uh, God giving uh, Moses the two tablets to take down the mountain, and of course that's when things get a little messy, but we're going to move on to John, I believe it's chapters 9 and 10. In the first uh, couple of paragraphs, starting with, uh, well, the first five verses, they ask, uh, his disciples asked Jesus why the man was blind. Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And he answers in three, neither this man nor his parents' sin, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So, based on what I've just said, and I mean, just this season, I strongly believe that we're in, and I kind of mention all the time. It's interesting, he talks about there being seasons of work. He said, there's a time coming, no one's going to be able to work. But right now, I'm in the world, and I'm in the light of the world, and so there's work to be done. Well, we know everything's not done, right? So we can understand from that that there are seasons when a, when a really big work of God happens. And God needs people who are the light of the world, who have the fullness of Christ in them in order to be that light in the world. And it's interesting based on what we just read about the law of Moses and how important the Sabbath is, the Pharisees made a big deal about this because Jesus actually healed this man's blindness with the mud in his eyes on the Sabbath. And so they say in 16, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. So you can see how this was confusing. I mean, this would, I imagine this would have been confusing for me if I lived at the time because God was very clear how important the Sabbath was when he gave the law to Moses. And here's a man coming saying he's sent from God and he is not keeping this very clear commandment that God had given Moses in the way at least that they understood it. And so, again, the importance of always seeking God and what he's doing to enlighten us on what the scriptures mean versus going off in our own religious ways, because we are all susceptible to that. And Jesus makes this point when it wraps up, you know, this man becomes incredibly bold in front of the Sanhedrin. These people were terrified of the Sanhedrin in kind of an awe, kind of as we should be about God, kind of awe, fear of God. I mean, these are the people that are supposed to represent God. And 
And so they would be terrified. They're studied, they're learned, they're in charge, they're powerful, they're rich. And here he is boldly saying, you people are wrong. This man gave me sight. And so then he encounters Jesus again. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, tell me who he is. I'll believe. He says, now you've seen him. I am him. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus says, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. I just mentioned the the dangers of religion. That's exactly what Jesus is pointing out. Always take everything before the Lord. Is, Is this truly the Lord or is this a faulty understanding of the Lord that I have? And that's actually, I haven't gotten to the last two verses, but that's how Jesus sums it up. Because some of the Pharisees say, what are you saying, we're blind? He said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. He says, you're putting yourself in a position of authority, both in who you are outwardly to others, but also inwardly in your heart. And you're wrong, therefore you're in a position of sin, missing the mark, guilty. And then he goes on to give a famous parable. He says, starting in chapter 10, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. He's saying there's only one way in. And if we try to build a religion or accept some religion that others have built in order to get in, we're not truly in. We might appear to be in, but we're simply a thief and a robber. This is if we're truly his, if our heart is truly to know him, to follow him, he will make known to us what is his actual way. And then he goes on to say, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who enter came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, but he he will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or as other versions say, abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So he's saying this is these are principles of of discipleship that the the sheep should hear the shepherd's voice. The, the in it because it's not his own voice but that of the father speaking jesus says many times he only speaks what he sees the father speaking so the the ones who are to receive that message from the discipler the disciple should hear the word should know should recognize the word of god and grow in that to to themselves grow closer to the lord and that in this way the the kingdom is multiplied and it always must be built on, through, with, in every preposition we can use, Christ. That there's no other way. No religion can do it for us. It has to be the life of Christ. And if we take up that life and serve in others, it means laying our own lives down for others. And Jesus actually says, the, verse 17, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. That's a powerful thing. Again, if we were to enter into his life, 
Why does the father love Jesus? Because he lays down his life. Adam didn't do it. He went his own way. Jesus laid down his life for the father. And the father allows him to take it up again. It's the same with us. He's looking for a people willing to lay down their lives and say, whatever you have for my life, I accept it. And of course, the truth is, it's better than what we would have wanted in our own flesh. At the end of chapter 10, he talks about, he says, he and the father are one. And they get upset with him because they say he's, they see he's claiming to be God. And he says, doesn't the scripture say, I have said you are gods? So that's, you know, it's interesting. It's scripture says, I say you're gods, which I think is a psalm, Psalm 82 maybe. Um, and... And Jesus is quoting that to see, look, there's more than this simple religion that you understand in the plan of God. I am the one set apart as a son of God. And so if I'm doing what the father has me do as his son, believe because you see that I'm about the father's work. If you believe in the father, you should see and understand these things. He says, I'm not, I'm not putting myself up. I'm laying my life down for the father. This is how you know him, his son. Moving on to Proverbs 6 and 7. I'm struck in the beginning of 6. It's, it's interesting. Like my first thought is, you know, these first nine are really about wisdom. All the Proverbs are about wisdom. But the first nine really focus on wisdom. And, uh, but then it's also a lot of practical things on how this works out. And one of them is good relations with another. It says if, if you're basically in bondage to another. And it's, you know, it's kind of saying this sounds monetary at the beginning, but I, I believe this can be emotionally, it can be in all sorts of things. He says, go and humble yourself and plead with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, but go and you'll be released if you humble yourselves and just approach the person in that humility. I think that's powerful. In Proverbs 8, again, is you know, how do you gain wisdom? Which, of course, Wisdom is the seventh of the seven spirits of God in, in Isaiah 11, right? That we see again in Revelation. Well, you see those all kind of playing out here in different ways. If you'll bear with me that things like prudence and discretion point to fear of the Lord. And by me, kings reign. That's lordship. We're, we're pretty much knocking out all of them here. And growing in the wisdom of the Lord. Seek the fear of the Lord, sorry, growing in wisdom. Seek the fear of the Lord. Seek instruction, knowledge, uh, counsel, understanding, lordship. Uh, and this is the way in. This is the, the mind and heart of the Lord. And he says, those who love me and those who seek me, find me. And we wrap up with Galatians 5 and 6. And again, I mean, Paul's accentuating the point that he made in the last couple chapters, but... He says, once you're free in Christ, do not go back into the ways of the world. Do not go back into dead religion. Move on in faith. And then he says, but well, you who are free in the Lord, don't use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature, but serve one another in love because the entire law is summed up with love your neighbor as yourself. So then he goes on, verse 16 on, go on to live by the spirit, not the desires of the flesh, but the law of life. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law of death that reigns in this world. But you're, that means you should also be, if, if you're living at all times by the Spirit, you're not under the law of the flesh either. And of course, there's, a, there's a, just a tremendous 
progression to live our entire lives according to the spirit and never according to the flesh. I am not there yet, but I have high hopes of what the Lord is doing and that I continually seek forward that the fullness of life by the spirit be the life that I live. And he does warn, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you go in the ways of the world. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So this is a very high standard that Paul is establishing. And, and it depend, you know, I don't know where the, you know, you who are listening are, but that's not to get us down if, if we're, if we see this as a, a long way from this. But to have us strive for, knowing that the Lord himself must transform us. He is the one that's powerful to do mighty works. But we have to be willing and eager to enter into this life. Or he won't, he won't intrude on our freedoms if we don't invite him in for these things. He says in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature... From that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So do not weary, be weary of doing good. So he's basically saying, <laughs> you're all Christians here, but what life are you living in? Are you sowing into your earthly sinful life? Or are you sowing into the spiritual eternal life? So he says, don't be weary of doing good. There will be a mighty harvest. And he says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And it's interesting that, you know, they were dealing with people wanting to, the Judaizers were trying to circumcise people. But again, this, this has to do with religion. He says, the people that are trying to do this to you are trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're trying to avoid the cross in themselves. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Are you a new creation or are you being transformed into a new creation? Or have you figured out a way to live half in the world, half in the spirit or whatever percentage that is? He says, no, go all the way. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Um, so anyways, that's the end of the book of Galatians and the end of our not so short talk. <laughs> the Lord bless you.